Hello and welcome to the Dogwood Podcast for February 2018. My name is Lisa Sammartino and I'm sitting here in the Burnaby office kitchen with my colleague Sophie Harrison. Hey Lisa. Hey Sophie. What a crazy month. It has been super hectic and busy and exciting. It's just back and forth so much that you're like, only 28 days. So much has happened. Never thought I would get to drink wine as a tactic of <laughs> resisting oil tanker expansion, but yeah. here we are. It was pretty fun. We drink wine anyways. Right, but this time it was political. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, so let's run through this. January 30th, Environment Minister George Heyman comes out and makes this announcement that kicked off this whole crazy month. Right, exactly. So what the Environment Minister was proposing was five pieces of new regulation on oil spills, something really clearly within provincial jurisdiction, spill cleanup. Um, the proposals ranged from addressing response time or compensation for, for loss, like if a company spills, it probably shouldn't be on the people who live here, the First Nations, to deal with the impacts. They should be compensated. That makes sense. Those types of things. Um, the fifth point of new regulations that they were floating out there was the one that really raised the controversy. And that was a proposal to have a scientific panel to review all the unanswered questions about what happens when diluted bitumen spills, whether we can actually clean this stuff up, uh, and propose that in the meantime, no new shipments of diluted bitumen should come through the province of British Columbia until we can get those questions answered and determine if it's safe for the people who live here. Because we don't actually know a lot about bitumen. Some people say it floats, some people say it sinks. All kinds of Some serious say, unanswered questions. Amoebas eat it. I'm not really <laughs> sure, right? Totally, yeah. And I mean, it's worth noting that in November of 2016, right around when Justin Trudeau was approving this pipeline, the Royal Society of Canada, um, a very respected, reputable scientific body, um, issued this report basically naming a whole bunch of unanswered questions about how diluted bitumen works. It's worth noting that this report was requested by a whole bunch of oil industry associations in Canada. Oh. So even folks within the industry, within um, governments of all levels, acknowledge that there are these unanswered questions. The federal government is talking about how more research is needed. So to me, it was really exciting for the BC government to say, Yes, more research is needed, and we're not going to expose communities to more risk until we address those gaps. Right. Alberta, not super happy. Um, Rachel Notley reacted first by suspending what she said, suspending talks of electricity. Mm -hmm. um, Minister, Energy Minister Michelle Mungle said, well, that's not exactly accurate. Those talks were going downhill already. Um, so Rachel Notley again responded um, with a ban on BC, the import of BC wines into Alberta. Mm-hmm. Everybody went crazy. It was wild. Yeah, it was pretty fun. We had fun. Um, British Columbians, including ourselves, took to social media. We had fun hashtags, like hashtag Toast the Coast. Hashtag War of the Rosés. Yeah, I like that one. Hashtag Pinot Not Pipelines. Um, yeah, and, and anecdotally, we heard this was happening across the country and even in the States. So like Quebec, we saw on social media, some allies in Quebec raising a glass, a toast to our coast. Um, One of my friends in Ottawa mentioned that there was an LCBO in Ottawa that sold out of BC wines because so many folks were going to support uh, BC and the stand we were taking against um, more Dilbert exports. It's quite incredible to see that support. It was really across. cool. It was, it really made you feel like part of a bigger, um, a bigger community for sure. Um, it was pretty fun while it lasted. Um, also, it wasn't all fun and games. Yeah. Well, the wine industry was quite upset. 
Um, and we were joking, like, drink, drink Alberta's share of, of BC wine. Um, but they were, they were concerned, rightly so, about the future of their industry. Um, and it really felt like a Canadian premier was attacking small Canadian business owners in favor of a Texas multinational, multi-billion company, which felt a little unfair. Super unfair. Yeah. So while it was like, it was pretty fun, um, we, we tried our best to support the wine industry and that's something we'll continue to do. Oh yeah. I <laughs> really enjoy supporting our local BC wineries. Yeah. But that wine ban was a bit confusing at the time. We didn't really know if Alberta was able to do this, um, what it meant. Minister of Trade Bruce Ralston challenged the wine ban, mm-hmm. said, you're not actually able to do this. Um, so last week, when we were preparing for this podcast, uh, and the wine ban was still ongoing, uh, we called up an expert um, out at UBC, and I'm going to play a bit of that interview. Keep in mind, it was recorded last week, um, so some of the information might sound a little dated, but, but it helped clear up, for me at least, um, what the ins and outs of that, that interprovincial trade war was about. Dr. Werner Antweiler is a trade economist, associate professor at the University of British Columbia, um, which is where we've reached him today. Thanks for joining us. Hello, it's a pleasure talking to you. Okay, help us understand what's going on here a bit better. The Alberta government has announced a ban on the import of BC wines. What does this actually mean? I see this mostly as a, a symbolic gesture because the, uh, the, the trade volume that is concerned here is not that large that it is going to do irreparable harm to uh, wineries in British Columbia, but it's uh, certainly a measure that is felt and it's meant to be uh, both a signal to voters in Alberta that the Alberta government is standing up for Alberta, as well as a signal to BC to, to start talking uh, about uh, this particular issue. Has a premier ever banned a product from another province before? It is a pretty unique situation. Uh, the provinces do have the right to manage their alcohol and liquor uh, in the province, and that is actually covered by federal legislation as well. Oh. Uh, but it's uh, quite unique for a premier to essentially uh, ban the, the import of a certain good from another province. That is uh, unprecedented as far as I can recall. So if they don't normally do it, is it actually allowed? It is allowed in this particular case because it's alcohol and uh, that is covered um, uh, under the uh, federal legislation uh, for intoxicating uh, uh, alcohol. And so there's, uh, there's, a, there's a law actually that, um, that does, uh, gives the provinces wide uh, right to, to regulate what is sold within the province. So yes, it's within the jurisdiction of Alberta to do that. However, there's also something called the Canada Free Trade Agreement that was concluded a while ago. And that's meant to open up the doors to trade between the provinces and remove the remaining trade beers, which also includes alcohol. Thank you for clarifying all that. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope it's helpful. And um, it's uh, certainly a topic that will keep us busy for uh, some months to come. He couldn't have known. <laughs> I know. Not, not so many months to come. I was fully planning to be drinking wine as a political act well through 2018. <laughs> we'll look for other opportunities. Absolutely. We're laughing because... Literally the next day after I talked to Professor Antweiler, um, we, well, Rachel Notley canceled the wine ban. How come? Well, it was in response to what she claimed was BC's Premier John Horgan taking a step back. So here's what happened. Um, the day 
of um, Minister Heyman's initial announcement saying no new deal bit through our province until we can get the answers British Columbians deserve. Um, Rachel Notley, Premier of Alberta, folks from all across the country started claiming this act was unconstitutional. Um, Illegal. Even Christy Clark was saying. Illegal. (laughs) But Premier Horgan's response, um, which I think was quite a smart one, was basically just to refer um, this regulation to the courts. He said, you know, you think it's illegal? I feel pretty confident from all the lawyers in the BC government, what they're telling me that this is well within my jurisdiction. Um, So we're going to prove that. And we're going to take this to the BC Supreme Court as a test case, put it forward, prove that this is within our jurisdiction, and then move forward in having the scientific panel and protecting British Columbians from oil spills. Right, right. Um, So we were wondering, how did that land in Alberta? Absolutely. So we called somebody from Calgary. Um, Professor Lori Williams, uh, who is a political scientist um, and professor at Mount Royal University, to give us her take on uh, what's going on from their side of the Rockies. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. So I'm going to take you way back to the end of January, uh, when BC moved to impose regulations on the shipment of bitumen through the province. What went through your head when you heard that announcement? Albertans, we are, we're starting just trying to come out of a of a recession, as as you well know. And right. the hope was that 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 continued economic growth was going to be facilitated by um, the building of of uh, or twinning the 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 Trans Mountain Pipeline. That said, though, there are a lot of people that are very concerned about the environment in Alberta, including mm-hmm. Rachel Notley. She's developed a climate change plan that includes. Um, a carbon tax, uh, a plan to diminish um, emissions, and now is even talking about uh, partial processing of bitumen to try to address some of the environmental concerns that have been raised around oil. Um, there's been some recent articles to from the National Observer and such, um, sort of to the effect that this is a package deal. Kinder Morgan can go forward um, if Alberta participates in the National Climate Plan. Um, and it, it sort of looks like Trudeau's trying to save this climate plan by pushing Kinder Morgan forward, trying to help mm-hmm. Notley get reelected. Um, it is partly that. There's no question about it. So, so just for bigger perspective mm-hmm. on this, even as an environmentalist, if uh, Alberta's plan or the national plan go through, the, the net benefits to the environment will be greater than just shutting down the pipelines. So again, it's this balance between the economy and the environment. Mm. Justin Trudeau is also... Um, trying to make clear that every province is going to have to make compromises. Alberta isn't going to get everything it wants. British Columbia isn't. Neither um, are any of the, <clears throat> the other provinces going to get everything they want. That's the nature of federalism is that is that you strike a compromise. You get a deal that gives you uh, enough of what you want and need um, in exchange for benefits that accrue to the, to the country as a whole. Speaking specifically about Rachel Notley, she is in favor of, obviously, she gener- generated this climate change policy that has uh, inspired other jurisdictions as well. Um, and uh, the leader of the opposition, Jason Kenney, has said that he's going to scrap that plan if he, if he gets elected. Right, right. What, what do you think about Rachel Notley's chances of re-election? Well, I, I think that her chances are, will significantly diminish if um, if if the uh, the pipeline is, hasn't at least begun to be built because the carbon tax part of, of the climate change plan is not particularly, as any tax would be, it's it's not particularly popular in Alberta. 
but she was she basically sold the plan to Albertans saying, um, first of all, we're going to give rebates to low-income earners and so forth. So a lot of money is going back to Albertans that are less able to pay. But she also said that um, that this would give social license. That now there's Alberta was seen a, a, as a bit of an env- environmental bad guy prior to this climate change plan, and and it's done a lot to redeem Alberta's image, and it's moved in meaningful ways in, in the in the direction of more environmental sustainability mm-hmm. and a balance of the economy and the environment. She sold that to Albertans, saying that it would give. Alberta social license to get it get a better price for oil, get its oil to tidewater because it was was managing things in a more environmentally responsible way. And if that and if that claim turns out not to pay off as she expected it would, then then uh, then that buy-in, that acceptance of the carbon or the, the climate change plan, plan, including the carbon tax, um, could be rejected by Albertans. Just going to take it back to, uh, I guess, the question that's before the courts or will be before the courts. When uh, when John Horgan announced that he was planning to take this um, bitumen restriction um, straight to the courts, Rachel Notley celebrated. She said, BC blinked. Um, Jason mm-hmm. Kenney disagreed. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think? Is this a win well, for Alberta? Yeah, she was trying to claim, uh, you know, a, a small victory in the sense that that all she wanted to accomplish was for um, the Premier of British Columbia to acknowledge that there was a constitutional question around this. In other words, he was claiming he had the authority to determine what or how much came through the pipeline. Um, and mm-hmm. the fact he was willing to refer that question to the courts meant that he was willing to accept uh, a ruling on constitutionality. So the reason she is is saying that that's a a, a bit of a victory for her, and frankly, it's a, it's a victory for for John Hargan as well. This is this is one of those situations where both can claim that they've gotten something um, out of this whole exchange. So. What she is saying is that if it goes to court, she's pretty confident that the courts are going to say that he doesn't have the authority that he's claimed to do. And she's got Peter Hogg, the premier constitutional expert in the country, on her task force who's who's telling her that. So she's pretty confident what the results of that court decision will be, assuming the question is about whether BC has the authority to determine what or how much goes through that pipeline. Um, John Horgan can claim the victory from this, saying, well, okay, um, I... And he had actually said a couple of times in the process, I'm not actually going to stop what flows through the pipeline. I'm just going to reserve the right to stand up for uh, the British Columbia environment and uh, uh, those in British Columbia who are opposed to pipelines. I want to make sure that we've got answers that will, that will uh, at least satisfy some of them. So both have been able to claim a victory out of this. Interesting. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Uh, I guess the one last thing I would say is Please. that if... Some people are wondering what question Premier Horgan is going to put to the court. Mm -hmm. Um, If he puts the environmental question to the court, um, then uh, then that might be a little bit less predictable. Certainly, there there is at least the moral authority, if not the constitutional authority, to um, to for the for the uh, the government to try to advocate for the environment in British Columbia. But to me, it's not so much a matter of who has the authority to do this. It's about actually accomplishing a balance that will be acceptable. And, and that, that very complex negotiation is something that's much more appropriately done um, in a, a context where people aren't sort of parsing every syllable. Great. Thank you so much. I'm at oh, my pleasure. just over time now, so I'll let you go. Okay, um, okay good stuff. 
That was Professor Lori Williams coming from Mount Royal University. Uh, we very much appreciate her bringing an Alberta perspective and maybe a perspective that echoes with some people across Canada um, to the conversation. Uh, what do you think? Well, first of all, I thought it was really... I'm really glad that Professor Williams brought this compromise narrative into our podcast because I think it's what we're hearing time and time again from people in the rest of Canada, from the prime minister saying, BC, you have to accept this pipeline and tanker project if you want to take action on climate change. Um, so I think Professor Williams talked a lot about um, Alberta's climate leadership with the climate plan. And I think my response to that would just be that there are some really good measures in that, and I, I applaud Premier Notley for the phase-out of coal that she's putting forward, the carbon price so that polluters pay for the climate damages they're causing. But the truth is, the expansion of the oil sands that Premier's Notley, Premier Notley's climate plan also allows overwhelms all of that progress. Right. Alberta has no plan to reduce emissions between now and 2030. Right. Right? And so I think the response to that is that I get that Canadians are in the spirit of wanting to compromise, but the physics of the atmosphere can't keep compromising. When I heard the compromise narrative, I um, thought I have a degree in human rights. Um, I thought about, you know, utilitarianism. And it got a little like philosophical for me, but governments try to act with like what will bring the most amount of goodness for the most amount of people. But that becomes a problem when it tramples on human rights. Absolutely. If it, if it makes 10 people happy to kill one person, that's still not okay, right? So totally. when you're thinking about like a compromise where BC gets a little bit and Alberta gets a little bit and the federal climate plan gets a little bit of participation, that doesn't matter when it tramples things like individual um, health and safety rights, or Indigenous rights. Yeah, and I think what we've seen is First Nations across the country, including here in BC, have seen their rights compromised in support of the, quote, national interest for centuries on this land, right? And right. so I think if we want to move meaningfully towards this era of reconciliation we're all talking about, um, that has to start with truth and it has to start with justice. And we can't keep compromising the inherent rights of First Nations over their unceded territory um, for the profits of a foreign oil company. Yeah. Uh, let's get to the question that Horgan is bringing before the courts. Um, John Horgan wants to figure out what is in BC's jurisdiction. It's very clear that a pipeline that crosses a provincial boundary is in federal jurisdiction, um, where health and safety is in provincial jurisdiction. The environment is a little more fuzzy on that. The, right on. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think we, in theory in Canada, we, speaking of compromise and cooperation, should be trying to live in cooperative federalism where a project like this that has so many overlapping jurisdictions, First Nations over their unceded mm. territory, provincial government in charge of local health and safety, spill response, um, and the federal government um, over an interprovincial project, um, it's messy and complicated. But I think what we saw in some of the legal cases around Enbridge in the BC Supreme Court is that, yes, the BC government has not only the right, but the responsibility to regulate over aspects right. within its jurisdiction. Um, and while we think we're pretty smart, I mean, we're not legal experts. We should probably talk to one of those. We, we have an interview <laughs> with one of those. Yes. Uh, Professor Jocelyn Stacey, uh, we called her up, an old friend of the Dogwood podcast. Um, and here's a bit of my conversation with her. Thank you for having me. 
So what do you think of BC's move to uh, take their ban on the increase of bitumen shipments straight to the court system? Well, I think this is a good move. I mean, keeping in mind that I'm a lawyer so and a law professor, so of course I I, I like it when we get to focus on the law. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do I do think this is a good move because there has been a, 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 um, immediately after BC made the announcement about these proposed measures that it wanted to consult on, this sparked, as I'm sure your listeners all know, this uh, really heated exchange of words um, between a whole bunch of different officials, and I think mm-hmm. that that perpetuated a lot of misinformation around what these measures could be and the constitutional law that underpins them. Uh, so by posing a reference question to the, the courts, I think it's, it's a smart move in that it allows us to take a step back from the specific politics uh, around the Trans Mountain Pipeline and actually focus on you know, what our confederation is really based on, right? Contrary to what uh, Premier Notley has been promoting um, in, in the news. Yeah, politicians definitely have their their own agenda on this. Um, what what exactly will like a judge be looking for in the consideration to make a decision right. on this? Right. So I think so. The first thing to um, to note is that uh, what this reference will require uh, of of the province of BC is that it's going to have to when it when it poses the question to the courts, it's going to have to uh, provide some details about the uh, the content of the measures that it has in mind. Um, so one of the things that's happened in the speculation around BC's proposal um, is that uh, people have understandably jumped to the conclusion that this is a ban on any increase in bitumen, diluted bitumen being transported in the province, and that's that BC hasn't said that. The news release says that there will be regulatory restrictions. And I think that that's an important, uh, but maybe subtle distinction is that uh, if you're looking at environmental law across Canada, it's actually pretty rare that we ban something outright. Usually what we do is we regulate it in some way. We have a permitting scheme that will allow things to happen if you get the required permit. Um, and so what BC will have to do is is provide the court with some details of, uh, of what it actually has in mind. Then when the court has that information before them, and, what, and I guess to, to follow up on that, you know, BC will pose a question along the lines of uh, whether those um, those proposed measures, those restrictions, fall, are are constitutionally valid exercise of provincial authority. So whether they fall within the scope of provincial jurisdiction, mm-hmm. that's the first question. Um, but the question that I think people really want to know the answer to is what that means for the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Right. So if the answer to that first question is yes, and we can go back and talk about the details of each of these questions in a second, if the answer to the first question is yes, then we would go to the second question of whether or not those regulations then apply to the Trans Mountain Pipeline because it is a federal project or what we call a federal undertaking uh, in constitutional law. So let's talk about each of those questions. So what a judge is going to look at when considering that first question of whether uh, the measures fall within the scope of provincial jurisdiction, the judge is going to consider um, the the dominant purpose and the effect of those regulations. And the judge will have to determine whether the purpose and the effect of those regulations fall within um, one of uh, the province's heads of power under our constitution um, or whether they don't. 
And so there's two possibilities here. So uh, one is that um, we look at these restrictions, you know, from what BC has told us so far, they're going to apply broadly to any increase in, in bitumen above a certain threshold, right? It's not specifically targeted at the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Right. It's not targeted at pipelines specifically, right? It applies to all forms of transport. Uh, and so taking a look at, at, at that, you know, if that's... Um, the evidence that sort of carries the day, uh, a court will likely conclude that that falls within provincial jurisdiction because provinces have jurisdiction over property, um, health and safety of residents and the environment. Um, the alternative um, is that a judge could take a look at the evidence and say, well, actually, this might on the, on its face look like it's a measure that's meant to apply broadly. But in fact, if we look at you know, a much broader record about things that were said in the campaign and what's been perhaps said by by um, people since is that, is that that this is, in fact, um, a measure that's intended to um, target the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Right. Um, and if that's the conclusion, that, 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 that the dominant purpose of these restrictions is to target the Trans Mountain Pipeline, then that would lead to the conclusion that this is unconstitutional. I have to say, I think that's unlikely. Um, you know, I think that the provincial interests that are at stake here are are hugely important. They're well recognized interests that fall within provincial jurisdiction. Um, so I think it would take quite a lot uh, of evidence for a court to reach that second conclusion that this is in fact targeted at the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Okay. Um, it feels like it is targeted at the Trans Mountain Pipeline, but maybe because that's our most um, broadly talked about subject right now. Right. Um, but right. if you're thinking like broadly of spill jurisdiction and environmental protection, this wouldn't just target that pipeline. It would target everything. That's right. And so, one, uh, so um, I mean, I'm speculating here, but mm -hmm. I think the province is going to draw on the abundance of evidence that we have uh, that, that tells us we don't know enough about um, how to respond to a spill of diluted bitumen, right? And so that's a right. problem that extends beyond this one pipeline, right? Um, uh, and, and, you know, there's lots of evidence uh, that the province can draw on when making, making that argument. Um, so that's one of the challenges here is because the, um, because the focus has been on one pipeline, um, you know, it, 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 that actually potentially un, could undermine um, some really important restrictions that the province could uh, put into place. So a court's going to have to look very carefully at that. Right. You sort of alluded to this, but mm -hmm. hypothetically, if you were representing mm -hmm. the province of BC, how would you argue your case? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that I would I would certainly emphasize the important um, health and safety um, health and safety interests that are at stake here, and uh, the fact that um, you know we now have a record from you know multiple um, decision makers that we don't know enough about. Um, uh, the science of recovering, effectively recovering spilled bitumen. So we have that from the Joint Review Panel report of the Northern Gateway Pipeline. We have that from the NEB's report on the Kinder Morgan or on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, mm -hmm. sorry, as well. Um, you know, we have a Royal Society report on on that. So we've got an abundance of evidence um, that that supports that. 
Um, you know, the the um, the province has uh, has access to a really helpful case, um, the Coastal First Nations uh, decision um, that was right. with respect to the Northern Gateway Pipeline. Um, where the BC Supreme Court found that um, the province had to uh, issue an environmental assessment certificate, it sort of couldn't turn that all over to the federal uh, the federal government. The court really clearly um, really clearly tells us that there are strong provincial interests at stake uh, at stake here when we're dealing with uh, a, a pipeline that you know traverses traverses the the province of BC right the majority of the pipeline is um, is in BC and so what I'm, I'm just going to read from this decision because I think this is pretty strong language so the court says to disallow any provincial environmental regulation over the project because it engages a federal undertaking, would significantly limit the province's ability to protect social, cultural, and economic interests in its lands and waters. And it would also go against the current trend in the jurisprudence favoring, where possible, cooperative federalism. So it's a statement that, go, that, that affirms the really important provincial interests that are at stake, and it also affirms um, the fact that governments should be cooperating to the extent possible when it comes to regulating these important interests. So here we're talking about the federal government and the and the province of BC, right? right. So BC is regulating um, issues related to uh, environmental protection, health and safety of its re- residents. But because this is a pipeline that crosses a provincial boundary, it's a federal undertaking, mm-hmm. right? So that's the federal government. What makes this interesting is that um, you know, in terms of how this debate is unfolding, uh, our federal government officials have taken a backseat and are letting Alberta actually make the federal government's case for them, right. essentially, right? So that's um, something. So actually, Alberta, the fact that Alberta is involved at all is kind of unusual, Um uh, Alberta, you know, clearly the, we, we can see the political interests that are at stake for the province of Alberta and the mm-hmm. economic interests and all of that. Um, but effectively, what Alberta is doing is arguing for strong federal constitutional jurisdiction. So if you're coming at it from a legal perspective, every time you see Alberta, you sort of need to swap in the federal government because oh. Alberta is the one making the federal government's case for them. So will Alberta act as an intervener on this specific um, move from BC where they're taking it to the courts? So I, I, I certainly expect that Alberta will seek intervener status right. um, from the court uh, from the court when this uh, reference question um, gets put to the court. Whether or not parties get intervener status is a discretionary decision um, right. by by the judge. Um, but usually, attorneys attorneys general, when it comes to constitutional questions, um, you, you know, usually they're granted intervener status. They have sort of a special a special status, a special expertise that's recognized by the courts when it comes to constitutional matters. Interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining yeah. us and taking the yeah, time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lisa. That was Professor Jocelyn Stacy from the Allard School of Law at UBC. Uh, a lot, a lot in there to think about. So much to think about. Um, I think one of the first things it brought up for me when Professor Stacy was speaking about BC's really strong jurisdiction over health and safety was just how much the reviews we've had so far haven't covered that. Right? You had the Harper National Energy Board, which Justin Trudeau 
promised to overhaul. He promised that overhaul would apply to Kinder Morgan. That process would be redone, quote. Um, Justin Trudeau broke that promise, approved Kinder Morgan's project based on the NEB review that Harper did that didn't address these health and safety questions. And then Christy Clark, after taking three quarters of a million dollars from Kinder Morgan's backers, mm-hmm. um, approved this project based on that NEB review without doing a provincial health and safety assessment. So I think that piece of just the gaps in our knowledge specifically around health and safety outcomes of diluted bitumen um, is a huge gap that all of the previous governments have failed British Columbians and Canadians on. Right, right. Um, I was really interested in the point she made around Alberta arguing the federal government's point. Um, This isn't actually between... BC and Alberta is between BC and the federal government. And I think it's also just worth noting how much history seems to be turned on its head in this one. Alberta is such a historic champion of provincial rights. So to have them Mm. now arguing that the federal government should claim supremacy and override provincial decision-making is fascinating. And also reminds me of, say, other regions in Canada that might be worried about that federal overreach and failure to (laughs) meaningfully cooperate across jurisdictions like, say, the province of Quebec, which could also be an intervener in this this BC test case. And have equal, I guess, uh, voice in this dispute as Alberta would. Totally. Yeah, because they're both just interveners. I also just thought about... um, in BC, it feels like, I mean, Justin Trudeau hasn't been especially vocal in the last couple of weeks on this. We've been saying a lot here, like, oh, he's risking his MPs here for seats that he may not get in Alberta. But mm-hmm. in Alberta, they may be feeling like he's not being their voice either. And maybe he's on shaky ground in both um, provinces when it comes to re-election. I think that's totally true. And when you look at the latest polling on Kinder Morgan's Trans Mountain expansion, The people that are most um, supporting federal government overreach, forcing this project through without municipal, provincial, or First Nations permission um, are older. They're traditionally conservative voters. Mm. Um, They're not the types of people that Justin Trudeau is counting on to get reelected. Types of people he is counting on to get reelected. Voters in the lower mainland, young voters, historically liberal or NDP voters, progressive voters, um, and all of those are the most likely to be opposed to this expansion. So I think I'm hoping that he's beginning to realize the huge error in his political calculus on this one and won't be willing to do what it takes to get this thing built. And he said it in Nanaimo Town Hall, you don't have to vote for me next time. Uh, So we'll see where BC and Alberta step up on that one in 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's it. That's our Dogwood podcast. It's been a month. It has been a month. And if you want to show your support for John Horgan, he's under a lot of pressure right now. Um, his government's facing it from politicians across the country, from, um, oil companies who have a lot of money and, uh, a lot of lobbyists. Um, so we need to remind him that we're on his side. We've got his back. What's the URL? Notankers.ca. You can go to notankers.ca and uh, and write him a little letter of support. What do we got coming up in March? Um, so it's been a really big month, and I think it's worth celebrating that as we move forward into the next exciting month where we might see the beginning of government consultations on some of these new oil spill regulations. Um, we're going to see 
on March 10th, um, Tsleil-Waututh elders and members leading a ceremony here in Burnaby on their territory. Um, everyone's invited to join at protecttheinlet.ca um, to bear witness to what they're putting on. Um, I think our resistance just gets bigger from here, and I can't wait to see this Texas pipeline company finally back off. Great. What do our listeners think? What do you think of everything that happened over the last month? Tweet us at DogwoodBC or give us a comment on Facebook, um, DogwoodBC as well. And if you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe. Leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play, um, wherever you listen to us from. And and better yet, share the knowledge and and share, recommend this podcast uh, to your friends. What will March look like? We don't know yet. See you when we get there. A lot can happen in only a month, and I'm excited. A little nervous uh, to see what's coming at us. Tune in and find out next month on the Dogwood Podcast. <laughs>